1988, director Barry Levinson and star Tom Cruise gave the world a brotherly road trip movie that would totally fly in 2024. No problems whatsoever. In 2024, we take a return trip to Scotland to try an affordable classic. The film is Rain Man. The whiskey is Old Pulteney 12 Year. And more of you than both. This is the, the Film and Whiskey, whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And Brad G, it is good to talk to you again, my friend. It's been a long time. Ooh, baby. It is time for season eight. After a month off, Bob, we have never taken a month off in the podcast We have before. taken a legitimate month off of recording. Now- we did not yeah. take a month off of releasing episodes. In fact, Brad, we have been quite consistent. We're coming up on five years of doing this podcast. We have never not released an episode uh, in a week's span in five years. I, I was going to say, I think there was one time where the episode that we released was a re-release from a year or two before. Yep, it was a Christmas it. time episode. We we yeah. reshared the Grinch versus Charlie Brown debate. Uh, Charlie Brown clearly the superior movie it's a debate that that begs repeating each year we should just share it every year at christmas time <laughs> in the christmas spirit we should listen to bob and brad rip into each other over children's animated films so we're back after a month we're shaking off the rust a little bit and we're diving into season eight now we are doing a hard reset on our season theme this time around, if you listened to our season eight preview last week, you already know about this. But in a nutshell, we're going to be looking at the highest grossing film or thereabouts for each year since 1988 and ending in 2019. That was a heck of a nutshell, Bob, because that was like an hour and a half long episode. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> now, why 2019? It was the last kind of normal year of the box office before the pandemic hit. And like, I don't even remember what we said the top grossing film of 2020 was, but no one saw it. And it also bad gives boys, us five. Bad Boys 2, Bob. Three. Oh, four, Bad maybe. Boys for Life. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Bad Boys 3, I think. Question mark. Anywho, it also gives us five years of space since that final film, which I believe is Avengers Endgame. So we're going to end our season on Avengers Endgame and finally look at that movie with a little bit of distance. I can already tell you, Brad. Uh, it's going to be uh, a hard, you're, a hard so 6.5 out of 10 for me, <laughs> <laughs> man. I, here's the thing. I liked the Avengers MCU until like the first Avengers winter soldier, mm -hmm. that area. I got away from it for a while, jumped back in and I don't want that universe to be bad. You know what I mean? Like I want it to be good. I want people to have fun with it. I just wish that people who were obsessed with the MCU also would watch other movies. I agree. I totally you know agree. What I mean? That's all that needs to be said, because we're going to be watching a movie today, Brad, that has nothing to do with Marvel or even, I think, pre-existing IP. And I, this is kind of why I wanted to start the season here, because we're starting with 1988's Rain Man, 
the highest grossing film of 1988, and also the best picture winner for the year. As I can't remember the last time that happened, yeah, but it's been a minute, It Brad. has been a very long time. It's also a movie that Brad has seen, not once. I have seen this time multiple times through, and Bob, I'd like you to tell the audience how many times you have watched it all the way through. This was my first time watching this movie in one sitting. I know for a fact, and having watched it now, I've seen every second of this movie before, but I just never in sequential order. It was just always playing somewhere on cable. And so I've seen it in bits and pieces, but I've never sat down to watch it through. And, you know, fun experience, yeah, Brad. An interesting one, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk all about the movie and uh, just how different 1988 was from today in terms of what people went to see in the theater. But before we get there, I want to say real quick, uh, if you have been following along with us on this film and whiskey journey, or if this is your first time listening, we would love for you to subscribe to our show wherever you're listening to this, wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us out a ton. If you're streaming this on YouTube, I know that you're probably not seeing our, our shiny, happy faces. You're just listening to audio. Give it a like. Uh, subscribe to us on YouTube. It helps us reach more people with every person that follows. Give us a follow on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, even on TikTok, at Film Whiskey. Brad, anything you want to add uh, off the jump here before we um, dive into this movie? Bob, you're wrong. It's not called Twitter anymore. Oh, uh, uh, X. 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 It's, hey, Brad. Yep. It's called Twitter. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to. I, I refuse. I'm not going to call it X. It's That might be one of the dumbest rebranding things that has ever happened yep like something that's so embedded in the conscience of like a social culture mm -hmm. i i don't know man it's pretty ridiculous although disney keeps trying to completely change everything that they've done over the last hundred years so, dude you're in a ooh. feisty mood today you keep trying to take us into these like huge cultural <laughs> discussions what are you talking about man listen yeah. man it's christmas and my father-in-law just gave me a massive metal, like, cut American flag with the Second Amendment on it. Ooh. So I'm, was I'm that, feeling patriotic. Was that your, man. like, white elephant gift that you received? Or... It's it's going to be a white elephant <laughs> gift. <laughs> I want a large American cutout with, like, the Third Amendment on it. Yeah. Like, I, oh, that would be incredible. I want one that's like soldiers you, can't sleep to... in your front yard. And it's just like emblazoned on an American <laughs> flag. Instead of the don't tread on me flag, it's like. It just says, get off my lawn. <laughs> don't camp on me. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, if this is the content that you like, folks, you can follow us on all of our social medias. Subscribe to us where you're listening to podcasts. Brad, let's segue into this movie. Now, you said you've watched the movie before. And you are also a noted lover of Sir Thomas Cruise. Mm. Um, if we knighted people in the United States, I think he'd be the first one. Oh, he would forge his own sword for the occasion. <laughs> you just know it. <laughs> in the heat of Mount Doom. <laughs> All right, man. Let's just give like really quick hitter impressions of the movie. Now, we, we are standing what? Like. 35, 36 <laughs> years away from the release of the film. I'm I'm coming off it for the first time. You've seen it a few times and we'll get into your more advanced thoughts here in a minute. But I mean, like, what's your initial <laughs> impression of the film itself and also just what attracted audiences in 1988 versus now? When when you said we were going to give impressions of the film, I thought we were going to do like 
impressions? <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> I was like, I don't think. That, nope. I don't think that's going to go well, Bob. <laughs> Man, this is a fascinating movie. It's it's one of those films that I don't totally know why it struck the chord that it did with America as a whole, as well as the Academy to win Best Picture. Mm-hmm. But I know that when I watch it, I'm vastly entranced and entertained by the relationship between Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. Like, like honestly, I guess the best modern analogy for it without all the racial undertones is Green Book. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, it's like, very much a, a Green Book-esque story. Yeah. Especially in the way that, like, you know, I don't want to dive too much into cultural analysis or, like, whatever, but I, I, I'm thinking about the year it's released. It's 1988. Uh, it's the end of the Reagan era. A huge time of economic boom for America after coming out of a recession. And, like, the star of this movie is Tom Cruise playing the yuppiest of yuppies in this movie. A guy who is, like, the embodiment of business culture in the 80s. I'm surprised he's not doing mountains of coke in the movie because you just know he does on the side. <laughs> I was going to say, y- you have to, like, think that if there's, like, a Buttholes remake of Cats... There needs to be like a cocaine remake <laughs> of Rain Man where every scene he just has like white powder all up under his but nose. But it's like, you know, the, the yuppie <laughs> generation learns to find its heart. And I think that's like in a nutshell, mm. that, that might be why this movie succeeded. Like people were on board for these types of movies. They were coming out of a very materialistic decade and they wanted to see a movie where the yuppie did nice things and crucially did not have any financial harm done to him at the end of the film either it's a it's a great win-win for america yeah and i will say with the with the realities of how far we've come since 1988 bob is there any specific way we want to talk about the uh, i don't know the the portrayal of autism in the movie Yeah. yeah like like do we talk about it as a mental handicap do we it's a it's a neurodivergence, right? Sure. It's it's a different way that Dustin Hoffman thinks in the movie. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I actually think especially given like 36 years of them writing new DSMs and, and like being able to yeah. understand the spectrum more. Yeah, even, I, I think this would have been like the DSM three. I want to say. Yeah, I want to say four and five. And now they're on like five point three. So it's crazy how far we've come. Yeah. And, and I think that even with a lack of terminology and a lack of general understanding, especially in the general population. I think this movie does a really good job of explaining what autism is, how it differs from what at the time in the movie they're calling like mental retardation, right? What we would call a developmental disability in that way today. But it's very sensitive to the topic too. And so I really don't have a lot of notes on, you know, if we wanted to really nitpick, like here's what we understand better today. But A... Like, that doesn't make for an entertaining podcast or an engaging one. And also, I just I don't think that anything in this movie is done in bad faith. And so I don't like I don't intend to come at it in a way that's correcting or attacking or anything like that. Yeah, I was honestly I brought it up because I was actually quite refreshed by the way that they handled it. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, like they take great pains to say, like, this is a very specific form of autism where he has savant like qualities in some areas and massive deficiencies in others. And that's like a very specific subcategory of an autistic spectrum. So they try to like separate it from the rest of autism, but they give a good definition of autism in general. 
And mm-hmm. I I genuinely think that's why I brought it up to say, man, I was impressed for what they did in 1988. Yeah, 100%. And I think that, like, honestly, before we get any farther down the trail here, we need to pivot to our first segment of the day, which we call Brad Explains. Brad's going to give us the movie plots with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take. With this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Brad Explains, for those of you who don't know, is when Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just watched, often for the first time. This is at least Brad's third time watching this movie. Uh, And you're going to get 60 seconds to explain the film in graphic detail with full spoilers. Now, Brad, I will say, I think we've pretty much already set the stage here. We've said that one character is a yuppie and one character is uh, autistic. and (laughs) And that it's like Green Book. And that might be almost good enough to do Brad Explains just on its own. I was going to say, I probably should just tell the entire story from the viewpoint of his girlfriend. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. What's her name? I don't remember. I don't Susanna. Remember. Yeah, Susanna yeah. is her name. I should just tell Brad Explains from her viewpoint. <laughs> All right. Well, whatever you choose to do, you have 60 seconds on the clock. I am going to give you a hard cutoff at one minute and go. Rain Man is a film about a doctor uh, of a medical facility who has a young man in his care throughout his entire life. And then this young man grows older and is stolen from his facility by (laughs) (laughs) by the man's younger brother who thinks that he has all these rights and that all the money that was left to Raymond, the, the man in his care, he thinks that all that money belongs to him. And he's angry and he's got daddy issues. And the entire film is about Dr. Bruner trying to pacify the demands of the younger brother and bring Raymond back into a safe place. I didn't think you were going to commit to the bit as hard as you did. And I have to say, I'm impressed, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. You started off talking about the doctor and I was like, huh, what an interesting lens to think about this movie. And then you kept (laughs) going with it. And it took me a good 15 seconds before I realized... Oh, this is a this is a bit. I, yeah, I saw the light click on <laughs> over your head. I I will say I'll give the uh, the doctor props played mm. by Gerald R. Mullen, somebody I've never seen before. Uh, he's a million times better than the doctor in Awakenings. You know, so, uh, you could only get there's probably only like <laughs> one good acting doctor floating around Hollywood at any one time, and he was booked <laughs> up for for Rain Man. Yeah. So the movie in actuality revolves around Tom Cruise's character, uh, who is an incredibly selfish yuppie. And I think that one one thing that stands out to me, Brad, about this movie is how early on they start sowing the psychological reasons for why Tom Cruise is the way he is. And I was really impressed by it. But I also feel like he stays such a stubborn a-hole for so much of the movie that when the change comes, I don't want to say it feels like it's too little too late because the movie really is about his his growth as a character. Uh, but but he's so stagnant for so long that I found myself. His character was even more grating on me than I think it was intended to be. And I don't know if, if you had that same experience. I think that he starts the change like a little over halfway through the road trip, which is about three quarters of the way through the movie. And it's not too little too late. It just needed to happen more gradually. I think that there's enough scenes 
in that early half of the film where he's just being a complete dick to his girlfriend and she's like genuinely trying to love him well and listen to him and he's just so abrasive for so long that it it's it's pretty brutal man i did not totally enjoy that i think that the movement though at the end for him coming around and really falling in love with his brother and understanding more about himself is incredible except for the fact that his girlfriend just randomly shows up in Vegas and is like, hey, I'm back. And and that just, I don't know why that drove me nuts, but <laughs> there was just something about it that her character just shows up and then just completely disappears. Just, yeah, she's, she's, she's very much the capital C, capital G, convenient girlfriend. Yes. TM. Yeah. And that really annoyed me. I, I think that her character had a ton to offer the movie. The performance by Valeria Galena, noted Hollywood superstar, <laughs> was really good. Oh, I, I agree. Actually, really, I agree. really liked her a lot, and thought that if she had been uh, integrated more fully into the storyline, I think there was a lot there. Yeah, I agree. I I do want to go back to Cruise a little bit. I always think it's funny, Brad, that when you, it's time for your true feelings about a movie to come out, like internally, your body is like. I don't care what we're actually talking about right now. We're going to make it about what I hate about this movie. Because <laughs> you're like, what I don't like about Tom Cruise's character is his girlfriend's character. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, OK, we're going to go there for a second. And I am 100 percent with you. But I want to finish talking about Cruise in this movie because we owe it to Tom Cruise to talk a little bit more about Tom Cruise. Mm. He is uh, the patron saint of the Film and Whiskey podcast. I think one thing that always sticks out to me watching Cruz in the early years of his career. Now, he absolutely rockets to superstardom, especially <laughs> after Top Gun in 1984. He's 22, 23 years old when he makes Top Gun. And I think he's only 26 when he makes this movie. And he's he's made a ton of movies in the interim that are huge blockbusters. But he's always playing in the early years some sort of asshole. And it's it's always a likable asshole. And it's always somebody that has to overcome something. And in Top Gun, it's this need to, uh, you know, put the 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 ghost of his father and his best friend to rest in the color of money. He is just truly a prick and he never overcomes that in this movie. He is pushing people away because of some real serious emotional woundedness. And I love watching him find different shades of what is essentially the same person throughout the movies of the 1980s. And I think this is one of his best performances, like period, not just of the 80s. It always bothers me. And I think Hoffman's incredible and we'll get to him in a minute. It bothers me that Cruz does such a good job at mining the depths of this sort of archetype that. In the 80s, he just gets completely ignored by the Academy until he makes Born on the Fourth of July a year after this, because I think Tom Cruise should have been right there with Dustin Hoffman in the conversation for best actor at the Oscars for this movie. Bob, that was beautiful. Tom, Tom Cruise mm. is one of our greatest living actors. A, the fact that he doesn't have an Oscar is just asinine at this point. I think that the way he plays off of Dustin Hoffman throughout this film 
show how far he's come as an actor from a movie like Top Gun to now, where he allows, you know, like, I'm thinking about the uh, the gif of him from the first Top Gun, where he's like sitting back and he gave some smart remark to his girlfriend when he just found out that she's like the commanding officer of the mission. To come from there, from where he's commanding attention, where his charm oozes and and wins the camera every time he's on screen, to go to a movie like this where Dustin Hoffman is commanding so much of the attention, not just like the audience's attention, but the story's attention. Like it's all about him and his quirks and how he's learning to navigate the world that's not his safe room, the safe hospital. For Tom to take the backseat here and allow his anger to just boil and simmer under the surface and for it to explode at certain parts throughout the movie. And then he draws it back in. I, I just, I don't know if I've ever seen a more nuanced performance out of Tom Cruise. It's, it's incredible, man. It's, it's really, really good, man. Uh, and I think my hottest take about this movie is that I think the first 45 minutes of the movie are by far the best part of the movie. Mm. I think when they actually hit the road, the movie starts to paint in much broader strokes. It becomes like, a, you know, a lot more comedy, a lot more. It's just like a very simple, like brothers becoming brothers movie. And what they do in the first 45 minutes is so much more complex. And I think they're they're doing a lot to set up that transformation with Cruz. And they're doing it in a much more subtle and nuanced way. Like the, uh, when he first meets Raymond, like he finds out, you know, his dad dies. He hates his dad. He says his dad's a prick. He finds out this money has been left to some doctor in a hospital somewhere. He goes and discovers that he has a brother named Raymond who is uh, like severely, I don't want to say disabled, but let's, you know, just for the sake of time here, disabled due to his autistic nature. He goes and meets Ray for the first time. And they do this really, really cool thing where. Cruz gets really flustered about something, and I can't remember. He says something about the bookcases or the baseball cards or something. But when his brother Raymond is, you know, constantly repeating himself, he always says the word definitely. Like, definitely need to go watch Wapner. Definitely need to go watch Wapner at five, you know. Cruz does that. His character says, like, oh, yeah, but definitely give me the bookshelves. Definitely do that. And it's like, oh, I've seen enough of this movie to know that you're leaving a little trail of breadcrumbs to show me that these two people are actually inextricably linked together. And they do this really cool thing right after that, where Raymond and Tom Cruise's girlfriend are having a conversation. Like she's trying to show, you know, show him the baseball cards, but the camera's never on them. The camera's on everybody else in the room. And she goes off and talks to the orderly for a little bit about Ray. And uh, somebody says, I don't think people are his first priority, but they don't cut to Ray while they're saying that they cut to Tom Cruise, even though they're talking about Ray. And I'm like, it's such a brilliant little moment of editing. And it's not I, like I can't imagine it's in the script. It was something that was made in the edit. And I think that the movie's so clever in its early going that it almost kind of pissed me off about how simplistic it gets towards the end of the movie. Yeah, um, I mean, like. As with a lot of movies, man, how many have we movies have we watched where it's like, man, they're onto something in the first 30 to 40% of the film? Like, I think about Iron Man all the time. Like, we started talking about the MCU earlier. Like, the first half of that film, 
is like, what's happening here? This is incredible character development. And then the last half is, hey, Tony. (laughs) Right? But you kind of see the same thing here. They get caught up in the spectacle of Raymond, you know, being able to count toothpicks and Raymond being able to count cards and Raymond, you know, being used as a tool to get Tom out of his troubles. Right? I think that the moments that like really stick out and resonate to me in this movie are the tiny moments where Tom Cruise is on the phone trying to like haggle and smooth talk his way into an extension on this loan. And he's like, yeah, my, my father just died and I'm in Cincinnati and I'm dealing with some family stuff and the estate and my brother. Yeah, Lenny, it's me. Listen, Charlie, where the hell have you been? I've been sitting by this phone for three hours, man. Yeah, I had some things to do. I had to buy some clothes and Whoa, stuff. Oh, Charlie, we are in serious trouble. Serious trouble. What do you want to clothes? Hey, just, just take it, take it easy. Take it easy. I'm in Tucum Carry. I'll be there in a few. Just the cars to pay off the loan. The cars are gone, Charlie. Gone. And Beepin wants his down payment back. They all do. That's eighty thousand, Charlie. Eighty thousand. I don't have it. But you gotta pay these people back or it's all over. We're out of business. What am I gonna tell them? I don't know. And the way he is so angry with the situation and then immediately turns around and uses it to try and get himself an advantage, it's all the character formational stuff that I want to see in a film. And it's and it's mm-hmm. perfect here. And you're right. They lose track of that as things become more focused on Raymond and his stuff. And I do want to say, I'm a little, let's segue into talking about Hoffman. My biggest worry in revisiting this movie, you know, even from just what I remembered of it, was how is a portrayal of autism from 35 years ago going to hold up today? And I have to say, man, it is... Just like we've been talking about the portrayal of autism in general in this movie, Hoffman knocks it out of the park. I I was ready to come in here and say, like, this is BS. Tom Cruise should have won. I can see why. I mean, it's obviously the showier part in the movie. I can see why the Academy would fall for it. But I'm not going to say that it wasn't deserved either, because this man, Dustin Hoffman, like, I know he did his research and it obviously shows in the performance. Yeah, I mean... In reading some stuff about the film, he spent an extensive amount of time with a few people who have autism. He studied the way that they interact and the way they look at the world and talk to their caregivers and even just how they talk to people they don't know. He spent so much time with them and the man did his homework. Like, it shows. Not only did he do his homework... But he's this is like LeBron blocking Iguodala, like (laughs) like it's like the perfect confluence of preparation and years of learning his craft and knowing right when he needs to give a big performance, right when he needs to draw it in. I just I was really blown away by Hoffman in this. Well, and once again, it is not Hoffman's fault. It's really more of the script and and the way they take this character. Mm -hmm. I hate I really do hate the development of like the savant level stuff in this movie and the counting toothpicks from looking at it for three seconds and like the Vegas card. All the famous parts of this movie, I think, are the worst parts of this movie. And the parts that really stuck out to me were like, for example, 
one of the very first scenes that Cruz and Hoffman have together, they're still at the hospital and Cruz says, I'm going to take him out and look at the ducks or whatever. They're going to go sit by the pond and you see them sitting by the pond and then they cut to what's like a, a it's like a two shot, but it's a close up of both of their heads. And Hoffman is, you know, fixated on something else and not even really fixated. He's just not paying attention because that's just not how his mind works as an autistic person. And it, it's. I don't know how to explain it, man. If you've ever been around someone who has autism, it's not just an impersonation. It really is like an embodiment, kind of to the level that we talked about with uh, De Niro and his his ability to play advanced stages of Parkinson's and awakenings. I was like, truly, I was blown away by this performance. Yeah, there's not enough good things to say. And like you said, this is one of those terrible films where both of the leads could have gotten lead actor, right? Mm-hmm. And only one of them could get it. But like, oh, man, what a terrible film to have to watch with two stunningly good performances. <laughs> but like, let's let's go to Vegas for a second. I'm with you that the showiness of Vegas is a little bit overdone. Like, I think it's a clever opportunity to like integrate Dustin Hoffman's character into Tom Cruise's personal problems. But the fascinating part about Vegas is nothing to do with the card counting. It's the scene of Tom and Dustin at the bar talking about dancing, right? Mm -hmm. Like I would say that the scene of them dancing is, is one of the more famous scenes of the movie, right? Oh, a hundred percent. That's just so beautiful. And that's what the relationship has culminated into. And you see in that moment the beauty of the connection that they've made and the limits that Dustin Hoffman's condition place upon the relationship. And as somebody who has worked in the medical field and worked with people who are struggling to understand what a medical condition will mean for the relationship with someone, Tom Cruise is so good dude he's incredible like i can't tell you how many people i've sat with who are trying to understand okay my father for example has this terminal diagnosis and he's gonna die in a few weeks a few months well how do i handle this new reality of my life tom cruise is just incredible the anger that he has, the frustration, the disappointment, the how can I, how can this be good for me? How can I turn this into something good? All of those things are a reality that all of us face when we have unexpected medical oddities, weirdness, diagnoses happen to us in our families. I, man, I hate to under, that's such a good point that you made. And I, I agree with it and I want to let it stand. I think my problem with the Vegas stuff is also that it it almost seemed like they wrote themselves into a corner a little bit with the script because everything finishes up so quickly and so tidily from that sequence that you think, you know, like they beat the house in Vegas by cheating and then they get caught cheating. And Vegas is like, we don't know how you did it, but go ahead and take your winnings and just don't ever come back. And it's like, I've seen Casino. I know how this ends. They don't give you the money. They're going to beat you until you confess what you did, right? Like, yep. they're going to jail. That's not going to happen in reality. And I just, I really hate that it's, it just ties everything together in such a perfect bow. And even inside the Vegas scenes, Tom Cruise is is still motivated by his own greed. Like, he's he's still taken Ray to Vegas. 
because ultimately he wants to win the money that he owes the people for that loan, that they're going to come take those cars away. And it's not until they have that dancing scene that he has a change of heart. But then once he has that one little dance with Dustin Hoffman, it's like, well, now I love my brother and I'm going to advocate for him. And after an hour and 50 minutes of him kind of like circling the drain on that realization, (laughs) I think that's why it seemed like too little too late for me. It was so sudden. And I think it just kind of compounded with everything else about that Vegas sequence that didn't work for me. Yeah. No, I I don't disagree at all. The the way that the film wraps up just feels so rushed and and it's it's a problem of pacing, right? So much of the film is paced really slowly and beautifully and he gives every scene time to breathe and you have you feel the emotion of all the characters in each mm-hmm. scene and then all of a sudden you hit Vegas and rightfully so if if you're going to make a movie scene in Vegas. It's going to be fast paced. And then all of a sudden you just, the movie's over Mm -hmm. and you have some beautiful moments at the end. I think that when Tom is sharing with the judge, like what they did, the, the truth of the week, he's like, yeah, you kissed the girl and he did this and I took him out and I took him out to Vegas gambling and all these things. It's a really beautiful moment of him realizing, why am I telling all this? I could just lie. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have to be telling you the truth. So, like, you still get some character development at the end, but I'm with you. It wraps up way too fast. Well, in the spirit of wrapping up too fast, let's put a pin in this part of our conversation, Brad, and let's go over to Scotland and drink some whiskey. What do you say? (laughs) I feel like whenever you say that, you should insert, like, the Indiana Jones music as the map pulls up and it shows, like, the dotted line (laughs) of him traveling. Oh, Let's go man. over to Scotland now. Also, how great would it be if we actually had to take a trip to Scotland? And I just so haphazardly planned these episodes that I'm like, ah, oh, all right, we got to we got to hop over to Scotland real quick. We'll be back. Or if this was like your way of surprising me, <laughs> like, like, Brad, we, we got to go to Scotland now. I, I planned it all out with your job and your wife and we're going. Get in the car. <laughs> All right. So today we are kicking off season eight with an affordable whiskey, Brad. Sometimes we try to kick things off with like a pricey or hard to find thing, but that's not the spirit of what we want to do here. This is a this is the people's podcast, Brad. This isn't fancy Bob and fancy Brad. This is no, this is springtime as swill, Bob and Brad. (laughs) (laughs) We're drinking Old Pulteney 12 year Old Pulteney which I had to look up how to pronounce because there is an E in there that I, I didn't know if it would be pronounced kind of like uh, <laughs> the Balveni, like if it's going to be Pulteni. It's just mm-hmm. Pulteney. There's like 17 E's in here. <laughs> I, I don't know what to do with them all. It is a Highland Scotch. Now, Brad, I don't want to pop quiz you too quickly here, but uh, there are five Scotch producing regions in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is Campbelltown, which is the smallest of all of them. I don't know that we've ever had a Campbelltown scotch. I was going to say, one, I did not know about that one. One is the Lowlands. One is the Highlands. Then there's Isla and Speyside. And I think if I counted them out, we've probably done the most scotches from the Highland region, just especially because of all the Glen Morangies that we've tasted. That's a Highland scotch. Dude. As I pick your brain and as I say the words Glen Morangie here. Um, mm. What would you characterize Highland Scotch by as opposed to Isla or Speyside? I mean, the the Isla Scotches are going to be sailing forward 
peated usually. Um, I guess I, I can't think of a non-peated Isla Scotch. I would guess that they all are. I'm sure that there's one little distillery in Isla that's like, we, we don't peat our whiskey. What are you talking about? <laughs> but <laughs> I think the big thing with Highland Scotches is how buttery and honey forward they are. Like, mm-hmm. they are so much richness about them that, man, oh, man, they are delicate and tasteful. And, like, here's the comparison, Bob. Highland scotches are like a classy Brit compared to your average gun-toting Mm-hmm. U.S. American, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? If I could, they're just yeah, tasty, I mean, delicious. When I think about the regions we've tried, Speyside mm-hmm. and Highland are the closest in terms of flavor yeah. and what you're getting. And I would say that like Highland's definitely more subtle and more gentle than an Isla Scotch, but it has way more spice to me than Speyside's usually do. Speyside is really the most delicate, and I think that if you're you know if you're thinking like the uh, American paradigms of like bourbon and rye they're very similar but i I would say space side's more of like your bourbon like it's a little bit sweeter it's a little more delicate you're not going to find quite as many things on a space side at least for me and then uh highland is more of your rye there's a there's a lot more grain there for me a lot maltier it's not quite as sweet on the nose or on the palate there's a lot more spice i just think it has a bit more backbone at least the ones that we've tried to most space side scotches yeah, and the one we're drinking today, Old Pulteney 12, is a Highland Scotch that is coming in at 80 proof, Bob. It is mm-hmm. about as low as you can get. Now, that's another fascinating thing that I've learned, is that here in America, we get a ton of 80, 86 proof, 92 seems to be the highest we often get that a regular Scotch will go. Apparently, over in Scotland... They just keep all the cast strength for themselves. Don't ship it over here. <laughs> so that's all they drink. We really do need to get over there to Scotland sometimes. Yeah, right. All right. As Brad said, this is a single malt Scot- Scotch whiskey from the Highland region. 12 years of age. It is matured in ex bourbon casks. So I think we'll get a little bit of that bourbon spice here as well. Brad, what are you picking up on the nose? Yeah, this one is incredible, Bob. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I just love scotch, man. Every time we drink it, I'm like, why do I drink any American whiskey? This is so good. Uh, this is like honey drizzle. The barley comes through like like really foundationally, prominently. Mm-hmm. There's a decent amount of vanilla notes that I'm getting from those bourbon casks. Mm-hmm. And the longer I spend time with it, the more I got some really beautiful rose floral type of notes. This is a great nose. I'm going to give it an eight and a half out of ten. Yeah, I'm going to be a little bit lower than you only because I started thinking about where this falls on the spectrum of like Highland scotches we've tried. And it's got a ton of melon. It's got a ton of floral notes. There's some citrus. on. It's really fruity up front. Um, and then you have like an almost I don't want to say bitter smelling because that doesn't make sense. But like the grain is definitely present here. And I think this falls pretty neatly in between like our favorite Glenmorangies on one end hmm. and on the other end, like every blended scotch we've ever tried like you yeah. and i are big fans of cuddy sark <laughs> just because of what it <laughs> Dude, is come on cuddy sark has these really delicate notes on the nose as well but then like a little bit harsher grain and i don't like i'm looking at the price tag on this we'll reveal that in a little mm. bit this makes sense for the price tag right so 
Uh, I think yeah. objectively, I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the nose. <laughs> but Dude, when we get around to price, I think I'll reward it there. Yeah. I think that the flavor profile here, as you get into the actual palate, mm. I think that the fruitiness comes through. I got a ton of like grapefruit on this. There was some dark chocolate, some toffee notes. I got a little bit of a ginger spice here that I thought was really pleasant and unique. Overall, I would say that this is a really solid above average scotch that I'd give like an eight out of 10 to on palate. Yeah, I'm going to give it a seven and a half again. I actually Would've picked up, up most of what you're mentioning here. I didn't get the ginger <laughs> when I really wish I did. I, I like that a lot. Ooh. I got a little bit more black coffee on this than than I guess you did, too. Uh, but I've also been like just really pounding coffee lately, man. <laughs> I, I, need, I need to cut it back a little you bit. Just have coffee uh, in your soul at this point. <laughs> I can just pick it out everywhere. Uh, yeah, so I'm at a seven and a half on the finish. Man, I'm really struggling with this one, Brad, because there's not much of a finish. Like, yeah, I. I just finished another sip of it when I started talking and the flavor is is gone. Yeah. This is a place where like adding six to 10 proof points, I think it would have made the finish much more potent. Mm -hmm. Like it was fine. I give it a seven and a half. There was some sea salt coming through. There's a little bit of lemon zest. The vanilla bean really stuck out for me on the finish. The That bourbon barrel influence really was there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it it falls apart on the finish just a little bit. It's still good. I would, in the grand scheme of things, you know, like you'd rather have a pleasant finish that isn't there long enough than an unpleasant finish that hangs around too much. And so, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to give it a seven out of 10, but it is a nearly non-existent finish. And so it's like a seven with an asterisk on it. Yep. In terms of balance, it's weird. I gave a seven and a half, a seven and a half and a seven. I guess it's well balanced. Ten out of ten. I nah, I just like I don't think this is an exceptional whiskey, you know. Yeah, but I'll give it a seven. I give it an eight out of ten on balance. I think that the flavor profile is consistent throughout. There's enough complexity to reward it in the balance area, uh, but nothing that makes it like stand out and mm -hmm. be like, oh, it's more. Like the pieces put together are more than they are individually. It's it's pretty solid overall. I think on value is where I'm really going to reward this because right now I'm not sitting in a great score, but this whiskey is $32.99 in the state of Bro. Ohio. Bro, that's such a good price. Where can you get know. a single malt scotch whiskey for $33, yeah. Brad? Yeah, it's an incredible price, guys. I cannot stress this to you enough. If you want to start drinking scotch... And you don't want to start in the world of blended scotch. I don't know of a better starting point, Bob. I mean, this is cheaper even than like monkey shoulder, which is yeah, a blended. That's what I'm saying. This is a nine and nine and a half out of ten on value for me. Yeah, I think I'm I'm gonna give it a nine. I do think that like flavor wise, this does get just a tad bitter for me. Um, and I would suspect for a new scotch drinker they would want something that's a little bit more mild even than this in terms of the flavors that are left behind but for 33 dollars, again you physically cannot do better than this so i'm gonna give it a 9 out of 10 which brings my final score out to a 38 out of 50 yeah i'm i'm a little bit higher than you bob i'm at a 41.5 out of 50 that brings our total to a 79.5 out of 100 or a 39.75 out of 50 on average. 
That puts us just below the 40 mark where we are like really singing the praises of a whiskey. And I'm glad that it did, Brad. I'm, I'm glad that we avoided the 40 mark on this because it it would have been the first 40, I think, in the history of the podcast that I wouldn't advocate super strongly yeah. for. It would be a 40 solely based on how cheap it is. Yeah. I think that if you know what you're getting into, if you have enough of a palate to discern like, okay, a, a more expensive version of this would be right up my alley. Like, if you know that you're at that point of your whiskey tasting career, this is for you, man. Because if you haven't drank scotch or scotch isn't your go-to drink, give this a try. Old Pulteney 12 is spectacular for the price point you're getting it at. Mm. All right, man. I I think we're in a good place on this one. What do you say we get back to talking about Rain Man? Rain Man. Let's get to it. All right, everybody, that was Old Pulteney 12, a whiskey that I am so happy we started the season off with, Bob. It is cheap and delicious. Just like me. Mm. Brad, before we go any further, I want to give a quick plug for our Patreon. We didn't do this at the beginning of the episode, but I was thinking the whole time, man, I can't wait to compare this to Glenn Morangy 10. And I know that I'm going to get a chance to do that because right now on our Patreon, we are revisiting every movie we reviewed in season one and recording all new episodes on every single movie. And Glenn Morangy 10 was paired up with a film in season one. If you'd like exclusive access to all of those episodes, it's a full season's worth that we're releasing one at a time. Join our Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. Support us at three different tiers. There's a $3, a $5, and a $7 a month tier. At each tier, you get exclusive perks. I won't list them all here. They're pretty great. Brad and I are uh, are on the Patreon Discord channel pretty much every day talking to people on there. It's a good time. A good time will be had by all when you join us at patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. You know what else is cheap and delicious, Bob? Mm. <laughs> Two facts and a falsehood. <laughs> Brad is gonna try to stump you, Bob. Two are right and one is wrong. Two facts and a falsehood. Brad, I love that it is now season eight and your segue game has not improved one bit. <laughs> what, what fun would it be if it did, Bob? Speaking of fun, uh, I am eating a 10 p.m. omelet right now as we record. What's in your omelet, Bob? Brad, it's like basically Christmas leftovers in an omelet. I don't know if you've ever had like a Thanksgiving Day (laughs) food omelet leftover. It is, dude, when you put stuffing and meat inside an omelet with cheese, it is all next level, bro. All I could see was somehow you putting like cranberry sauce in your omelet. I would try it. Oh, I would not try that, Bob. I'm trying a heartbeat. <laughs> that would be terrible. There's legitimately, we had a ham on Christmas, so it's a ham and cheese omelet with leftover stuffing. Sure. It's, it freaking slaps. Yeah. It's so that, good. That would slap. I mean, there's a lot. You're not wrong, Bob. There's a lot of things you could put from the holiday in there that would be good. <laughs> My brain immediately went to all the worst things, like a pumpkin pie omelet. <laughs> Candy canes. <laughs> Candy cane. Dark chocolate. <laughs> Here's my dark chocolate peppermint omelet, Bob. (laughs) It's delicious. (laughs) All right, man. We're going to get into two facts and a falsehood. This is the part of the show where Brad presents me with three facts about the making of this movie, one of which is actually a complete lie that he has invented. 
and I have to figure out which one that is. It's a new season. It's a fresh start. I am zero for zero on the season, and that means I do not have a losing record. This is this is a glorious day, Brad. Now, Bob, I'm curious, my reveal at the end of last season, how how shocking was that for you? It was a shock, and I can't believe I didn't catch it. Like, I'm really mad at myself for... You you clearly didn't try to hide it at all. <laughs> Not even a little bit. I think what got me was the fact that as I continued to choose fact number two as the falsehood every single week, I just kept telling myself, I was like, Bob has to catch on. This is like the uh, the Enigma machine in the imitation game. <laughs> like, Bob knows, but he has to choose when... He has to still make it a game so that Brad doesn't catch on, that Bob has got on. That's... Nope. I was like second guessing myself. The crazy thing is I edit our episodes. I've listened to every episode of this podcast like 11 times. Yep. Did not catch it. (laughs) Well, Bob, I promised you that I will not be doing such a trick again this year. All right, man. Hit me with your two facts and a falsehood. Fact number one. Caesar's Palace was the third hotel slash casino that producer Mark Johnson worked with to feature in the film with the other two being worried about being connected with any depiction of card counting. Fact number two, the elderly man in the waiting room who talks on and on about the Pony Express is Byron P. Kavlar, an 89-year-old local who was in the waiting room when the crew arrived to film there. He got to talking on his favorite subject, the Pony Express, and director Barry Levinson got such a kick out of it that he let Kavlar keep talking as the cameras rolled. Fact number three, and Bob, this might be the shortest fact ever falsely created or just the real thing in podcast history this was hans zimmer's first score that was nominated for an academy award Mm. i have a fun fact about hans zimmer that i learned Uh, i guess it's like an open secret in hollywood now but hans zimmer has been accused by many people of not writing the majority of his music for movies because he has a ton of intern interns work for him now And he tasks the interns with coming up with like themes for his Mm -hmm. movies. And then he just plays what other people wrote. But he gets to put his name on it because it happened under his tutelage. Dude. So you know what? F you, Hans Zimmer. (laughs) (laughs) That's messed up, bro. Like I can't like. Yeah. And they keep rewarding the man with Oscar nominations. What are you doing? Yeah. I mean, like one of my best friends has two PhDs from university of north carolina and all of the research that he did 100 percent his he did is owned by the university of north carolina Mm -hmm. like if there's any other any profit to be made off of it it's owned by them so i mean you know if you sign up as an intern for hans zimmer you probably know what you're getting into i guess so yeah uh brad i'm gonna say man Fact number one sounds really true, but for some reason I was going to pick it. Um, It's crazy to me that the casinos would be worried about the depiction of card counting and not the depiction of prostitutes hanging out in the hotel bar. I do think it's either one or two. I'm going to say. Yeah, heck, I'm going to say one's the falsehood and I have no basis for saying that. Bob, you are starting off the season incredibly strong with a win. Hey! Congratulations. So was it their first choice or or what? I have no idea. 
completely oh, made okay, it up. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I'll like look at facts and take something and and really change it. But no, this was a hundred percent. Well, casinos don't like to be known for card counting. Easy fact to make up. There it is. Uh, All right, I'm one to know, man. Here's the thing. I don't want to talk about that. Let's talk about my absolute favorite scene of the movie, <laughs> when Byron P. Kavnar is talking about the Pony Express. Tell me that that is not the best bit of comedy, as he just continues talking through the whole scene. Well, Tom Cruise is, like, trying to have a conversation. It's it's such a weird scene, too, because you think it's going to go somewhere, and then he just cuts to the inside of this doctor's office, like, never to mention this guy again. And it's so funny to me, especially because I think that's the same doctor's office where where they, the nurse goes, he's artistic. <laughs> and he goes, autistic. He's autistic. <laughs> How Tom Cruise, who clearly knows nothing about autism, is explaining autism to this Kentucky nurse. <laughs> oh, man. Such a good scene, dude. All right, Brad, I don't really have too much else to say about the movie. I think we got into a lot of it in the first half of the episode. I know I know, I asked you for initial impressions on the movie, but before we get into let's make it a double, what are you kind of left with with this movie? Because I'm starting to think about the score I'm going to give it, and I'm, I'm in a weird place with this film, Brad. Man, I think that at the end of this day, I had... <laughs> This day, yes, you heard me right. (laughs) At the end of this day, man, I really had fun with this movie. Like, I know that you didn't love a lot of the famous scenes, but they're famous for a reason, and they were entertaining. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think that if you cut off about 20 minutes or so of the movie, and you hand it to, like, a Steven Spielberg... I think that he's going to draw out a lot more of the relational elements. Dude, this movie has Steven Spielberg written all over it, first off. Like giant, massive dad issues? Come on. Come on. You would have turned this into a masterpiece. (laughs) And here's the crazy thing. This movie already won Best Picture for the year. Like, it's not like Mm -hmm. it could have gotten any better, right? Within its own era. But I I think that there's enough going on here to keep me from lauding this movie as one of the greatest of all time. I think it's a really fun movie. Mm-hmm. I think that it has a lot less issues with its subject matter than something like Green Book does. And so I think what you have is a similar incredible connection between Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise, the same way you do between Mahershala Ali and Vigo Mortensen. But you have way less problematic things, and I I just think you have better performances from the two leads. Mm-hmm. So, ah, man, I don't know. I just love this movie. I think more people should watch it. All right. On that note, we're going to get to our last segment of the day, which we call Let's Make It a Double. We're near the end of the episode, so thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's struggling. It's the final segment of the day, now let's make it a double. Let's Make It a Double is the part of the podcast where we pick a movie to pair up with this one to make the perfect double feature. I think our Let's Make It a Double picks are pretty obvious here, Brad. I, I mentioned Awakenings earlier. I think that's probably the one that I would go with. There's a couple, like custody battle movies that I think I could 
nitpick because the movie kind of comes down to that at the end of will Raymond get assigned custody to Tom Cruise or not. But I think Awakenings is probably the movie that shares more DNA with this one. And I'm going to go with that as my let's make it a double. Man, I I'm struggling with my let's make it a double. I normally don't like talking about my let's make it a double movie as we go throughout the episode. But I don't know. It's Green Book, dude. Yeah, I I, I don't want to use. I'm not going to recommend Green Book. <laughs> not this day, Bob. Not this day. I think I'm actually going to go out on a limb here. Are you ready, Bob? Mm-hmm. Based on the complicated father-son narrative and the the focus on a life trying to go the right way, I'm going to recommend that you watch Fences. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I I think that a more more people need to see that film, film. but b I think that there is a world where the son in Fences could grow up to become a Charlie Babbitt type character. I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. Thanks. All right, man. so Brad's going with Fences. I'm going with not Green Book, but Awakenings. Yeah, man, good pick. Good pick to start the season. Yeah. What do you think it was that? that made this the highest grossing film of 1988. Is it just that we used to go see anything that movie stars were in? And if it was good, we'd go back again. Or like, was there something inherent to this movie that made people be like, yes, seven times, seven tickets for that one, please. I mean, I think that part of it is how much more powerful star power was back then. Mm -hmm. I think that this definitely has enough it kind of captures both ends of things well. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't do it well enough to really suck in either deep, like people way on the end of the spectrum, but it has the really fun, entertaining, kitschy kind of moments that will entertain mm-hmm. the general populace. If, if I want to sound snooty, which I do this day, I choose to sound snooty, <laughs> but it also has a lot of really intricate character development that people who might consider themselves a little more of a cinephile would enjoy. So I think it kind of hits all the categories relatively well, and it has a really solid duo performance as a foundation for all the other things going on. I mean, this movie, we should have picked Forrest Gump to be the Let's Make It a Double, because that's kind of the the best analog, like a movie about someone with some sort of developmental disability that made a bajillion mm-hmm. dollars at the box office uh, that yeah. is kind of kitschy and and a little bit too broad at points and like pandering to boomers and early Gen Xers. And like it's, yeah. you know, Forrest Gump, this movie walks so Forrest Gump could run, truly. Mm. Run, Forrest, run because of <laughs> Rain Man. Until he felt like not running. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, like, I've still been like, percolating over here on your whole commentary about Tom Cruise and the roles he took like I feel like the first 10 to 15 years of his career was like exploring what it means to be Gen X Mm -hmm. like I want to be great because my boomer parents are telling me to be great but I don't want to be great in the way that they're telling me to be great so I'm going to be great in my own way (laughs) that they're going to respect at the end of the day right I think so man like that's that's his First 15 years of is a study in what it means to be Gen X. All right. Well, on that note, I'm going to give this movie. 
I want to give it a seven and a half. I don't think it's quite an eight for me, but it's like the strongest seven and a half I could give. Do you, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm going to stick it a seven and a half. I feel like that's probably too low, but I also feel like you like this movie better than I do. So it'll balance out in the end. I was going to say, I'm like at that eight to eight and a half hovering where I really enjoy this film. I, I think I'm going to give it an eight and a half, Bob. That's perfect. We're yeah. going to average out to an eight. This is like, this is what an eight out of 10 movie was made for. I don't yeah. know that like, I'm not super familiar with the film landscape of specifically 1988. Mm-hmm. I need to go back and look at the Oscar nominations again. But like, this doesn't strike me necessarily as a best picture winner of a movie. Yeah. But then again, like Forrest Gump wins best picture on the same general premise. So never count out the crowd pleaser, folks. Yeah. I mean, I'll also say this. It's the Christmas season here in Ohio and around the world, and I just watched The Bishop's Wife. Hmm. With Cary Grant? With Cary Grant. Yeah, yeah. It's a great movie. It is one of the strangest movies I've ever seen. It's about Hmm. an angel who kind of falls in love with a woman, and he's not allowed to, and it's really weird and awkward, and you're not quite sure where it's going most of the film. Here's the point I'm trying to make. It was nominated for Best Picture of 1947. You know? And I watched it and I was just like, this is not a Best Picture nominee. Yeah. Like, I, I love Cary Grant. But I watched Rain Man and I go, oh, this is a Best Picture nominee. I don't know if it's a Best Picture winner, but yeah, I don't know the field. All right, man. I think we've said all that needs to be said about Rain Man, but I'd like to hear from Film and Whiskey Nation. Let us know what you think of the film and our opinions of it. You can reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, slash X, uh, Instagram, TikTok. You can find us on YouTube, at Film Whiskey. Do they thread at us? What is threading? I, th- I think they X at us. A thread is Instagram's new answer to Twitter that is not taking off at yeah. all. Please don't thread us, because <laughs> I don't check that. <laughs> Guys, if you want to join the conversation live, day to day, go join our Discord. It's the place to go if you want to talk about all things film and whiskey. You can find a link to it at the end of every single one of our show notes. Bob, what are you getting up to tonight? Brad, I'm going to try to uh, hit stop here and go catch a late movie. But not before I introduce next week's film, we're going to be watching 1989's Batman, the Tim Burton Batman, the reason uh, ultimately for the MCU and the DCEU and just the hell that we're in right now. (laughs) Bro, the theme song for Tim Burton's Batman is very good. It's very good. So join us for that movie next week. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.